Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Steve Lynch, former CTO, which is Chief Technical Officer of Rapid, and now owner of Approved Sheet Metal. How are you, Steve? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Back in the day, you built your own motorcycle. How much of the bike ended up being custom parts? Well, technically, you helped me build it with your shop, so I do appreciate that. But sure. uh, yeah, we, we punched out some parts. We formed some parts. We had the guys in the shop help me with some welding, but I think nothing on that bike, the only things on that bike made it run, and it was very scrapped down 78 Triumph Bonneville, so it was a really cool bike. Yeah, that was fun seeing that come together for you. Well, be prepared today to be inspired by our guest, David Bamforth of Renscott Manufacturing and Renscott Automotive in Woburn, Massachusetts. David is only a year out of college and doesn't come from a manufacturing family, yet he has started a machine shop with some unique front-end capabilities and leveraged this part-making capability into his own products that he can manufacture and sell online. And I think different than most shops, most of his business comes from marketing and promotion they do on Instagram and Facebook. And I recently found out that he is doing the podcast today from the facility of another business that he started. So he's a scrappy entrepreneur and I'm just very excited to learn some new tricks on both manufacturing and marketing and whatever else we chat about. So let's just jump in. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, David. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You started your shop, I guess, officially in the summer of last year and had two team members by July, but you didn't graduate from college until August. 
So why start before graduating and how did you juggle finishing school and a business at the same time? So it all started with just a love for cars and a love for manufacturing as well. When I was in high school, I spent some time in the machine shop, which is pretty cool that I, I even went to a high school that still has a machine shop. Yeah. The uh, dying out quite a bit, which is uh, pretty unfortunate with the, the need for people going into manufacturing. So that really was my first eye-opening experience into the world of manufacturing and getting my hands on some manual lace and some manual mills. And that's when I first kind of recognized that, that I had some real passion for that. And then like, like many of us, I've, I've been into cars since I was little, um, always looking at cars, going to car shows, being interested in how they're built and, and the manufacturing behind them as well. Did you have a car before you turned 16 and had a driver's license? I, I did not, unfortunately. I, I don't think I actually ended up having my first car until I was maybe 17. But as soon as I, as soon as I did get into cars, I quickly started losing <laughs> for any other hobby I was into. I was really into mountain biking in high school. And as soon as I graduated high school, uh, my focus turned <laughs> directly towards cars and pretty much all my budget as well. <laughs> And so when I was a sophomore in college, I, I ended up buying my first kind of sports car, uh, 06 Porsche Cayman, which really opened myself up to, to the car community, the, the local car community, as well as um, starting to get interested into modifying cars and buying parts for them, installing them and doing my own kind of DIY work on it as well you know, learning how to do an oil change, all, all the basic kind of stuff and, and really getting involved with it and getting onto the car and, and looking at how it all works. After buying that car, probably maybe like a year after owning it, I went and visited a, a manufacturing company called Renline that's up in Vermont. And they are probably the biggest Porsche aftermarket parts manufacturer in, in I don't know, the US and probably globally as well. They make everything from mechanical components, suspension parts, to interior accessories, to sway bars, all, a whole bunch of different- Do they different make parts. this all in-house or do they sub out pieces? How, how does that work for them? I assume you got a chance to see the facility. Yeah, so that was really cool. I was going out to visit some some college friends up at UVM and, and they're based just outside of Burlington, kind of because not really in a hub of automotive like, like many huh. others, you know? you would hear their name and, and maybe know their company. You, you would instinctively just think that they were a Southern California company like right. everyone else. But yeah, kind of funny that they're based up near Burlington. So I went up there, visited some friends. And if you ever have met anybody from Vermont, you know, they're the friendliest people. So I, I sent them an email and asked if I could come by to buy parts, which they don't really have like a retail outlet. <laughs> All of their sales are pretty much just done online. Right. Um, so it was Pretty cool. I went there and I met with their their VP Tom, and he just showed me around the shop, showed me kind of their manufacturing space. They actually do a lot of manufacturing outside of automotive as well, kind of similar to us. They're actually a pretty big water jet business, so they do a lot of stuff for aerospace, doing the initial water jetting of parts before they get handed off to machine shops, um, and then they do machining in house with their own parts. And then something that's kind of funny, them being in in Burlington, Vermont, with Burlington having a pretty big kind of craft beer and right. seeing on kind of IPA beer, they, they actually produce a lot of bottle taps or bar tap to have handles. Um, <laughs> so they call plastics department. And I think when I first met them, I, I think it's probably changed since then, but like back in 2017, 2018, that was the biggest part of their business. Even though they were probably the biggest 
Porsche aftermarket parts company, the, the bottle taps were, were their biggest business because I think they would probably end up, you know, making a bar, uh, making some tap handles for some guy who just got his beer in the first like 10 bars or something and needed 10 handles. And then mm-hmm. eventually that would grow and become uh, a much larger company. And they would come back and ask for, you know, a thousand of them or something. And they would have to probably, you know, go over their entire manufacturing process to make it efficient for, for that kind of scale of manufacturing. So they did a casting of, of plastic components as well, using silicon molds and that type of thing. So they, they were a really interesting company and um, it was really cool to see their facility and kind of understand how they worked and the equipment they had. Um, how did that inspire you? It was really inspirational. It, it was my first kind of insight into an aftermarket company and, and how they operated. I got a chat with their engineer. They they actually were looking to develop a part for my car. So I spent a couple hours with him as he was taking dimensions and doing some mm. really quick kind of hacky prototyping of a foam mount for the car. And yeah, it was really good. And then being from Vermont, they were so friendly and so open. And even nowadays, you know, I, I can send them, give them a call or ask them about even business stuff and they're always happy to share and give some insight. So it's been a really great relationship. So when I went there and I talked to their VP, I I did what any young car guy who's on a budget would do and ask if there was a way to get a discount or (laughs) get my my car sponsored or something, which nowadays owning a company, I I still understand that it, it doesn't work as simply as that. But they were really generous and kind of mentioned, like, if I was thinking about starting a company, I could start a company and get a wholesale account with them. And that would allow me to get a discount both for myself, but also allow me to have the ability to to sell parts to, to other companies. So that immediately after, probably within the next two weeks, I started Scott with their inspiration. And they were the first company that we became a dealer for. So over the next kind of year after that, I I spent... Now you're still in college while you're doing this. Oh yeah, I think that was maybe my sophomore fall or something. And where did you go to school? I went to Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston for mechanical engineering and a minor manufacturing. So throughout that first year, I I was just, you know, pretty active on forums and Facebook groups for for Caymans and other Porsches and sold parts occasionally through that. It was, it worked pretty well being able to give some people some insight into maybe what what the best option was and sell them that way. So Uh, to get into the nitty gritty, as a wholesaler, did you have to buy the part and then ship it yourself or would they drop ship it for you or how did that work? Exactly. They, they would drop ship for us. And, and even with drop shipping, their, their margin was still pretty good. So, so that's how I went about it. You know, really nice to have a company with no overhead of inventory or anything like that. And sure. Only, only make our slices of the pie when, once we sell the pie. Um, right. So that worked really well. And honestly, if it wasn't for going up and meeting them and, and going out of the way to visit their shop, uh, who knows if Rand Scott would even exist now. So that I can. Well, I just I, I want to just jump in for a sec because you you hear about you have to find your passion and work in your area of passion, but you were passionate about cars, but not necessarily about parts and and modifications of cars. And by taking an action, you found your path to what you're doing now. It it wasn't this path that was just came to you said oh i have to do this it was by taking action trying stuff out that you were able to say wow there's an opportunity here and i like another thing too is you didn't start a business and hope that people would come you found a way that you own there was no risk to you as an entrepreneur you in a sense 
although you didn't quit your day job. Your day job was school. Most yeah. folks, it's actually working for a paycheck, but you didn't quit your day job. You figured out a way to start a business while you were doing that, and you found out that people would pay you for that, and you could make money doing it. So yeah. that's pretty neat. You have a similar beginning to uh, Ren Scott, and I believe it was Renline for the Porsche yeah, part. Yeah, exactly. So I assume that was deliberate. Yeah, well, so Ren, Ren in German means race. So I don't know where the rent, the line comes from then, but for us, the Scott part comes from the fact that I'm Scottish. My family moved to the U.S. when I was three from the U.K., so I still have a U.K. passport and, a, and I'm a dual citizen, so mm. and that's where the Scott came from. So it's kind of racing Scott is kind of the background behind the name. And it's is this part-selling business Ren Scott Automotive? Um, it's all under just one company, okay. Renscott, but then they act separately as kind of, you know, DBAs for Renscott Automotive Products and then Renscott mm-hmm. Manufacturing. We, we've been separating them quite a bit more, especially as the manufacturing side has grown up and became a bit more of an independent company and less of an automotive-focused company. Mm-hmm. Now, that makes a lot of sense. That's what we did at Rapid is we called ourselves Rapid the it was one company, Rapid Manufacturing or the Rapid Manufacturing Group. I don't even sort of remember exactly what the official name was, but yeah. we, we branded Rapid Machining and Rapid Sheet Metal. And yeah. I think it's important to, when you have enough distinction between services or offerings that you, you do want to, even if it's a DBA, which for someone who doesn't understand that stands for doing business as, and you have to actually register with the state you're in to it's almost like a trademark or a business name within the state, but it's not an official company. It falls under the umbrella of the, of the whatever the company that does exist. Yeah. So, so sorry, I, I, I jumped in there. Just so many questions. Yeah. So you're, so you're in school, you're selling parts. Other people are working maybe at the library make trying to make a little money to pay for some of their expenses and, and you're selling automotive parts so what happened next yeah so i wemworth has a really strong co-op program so i actually i might have misspoken previously that company officially started i i believe now maybe it was was the fall of my sophomore year but during my junior year, my junior spring, I, I did my first co-op, which was uh, Rolls-Royce's manufacturing site, which is in Walpole, Mass. Completely mm-hmm. separate from the automotive company. As you may know, they, you know the, the automotive side of Rolls-Royce was sold off ages ago and is now currently owned by BMW. But there's still Rolls-Royce, the you know jet engine manufacturer, and Naval Marine side. So I worked under the Naval Marine side in, in Walpole at the facility that manufactures all the U.S. Navy's destroyers, propellers. Um, so huge scale of manufacturing, a giant shop that uh, it was probably 150,000 square feet and fit five machines into it. And <laughs> it was full. <laughs> it, yeah. it was pretty amazing how the scale of the manufacturing, you know, huge overhead cranes, large castings that would come in and have to be set up on these five axis gantry mills. It was a really eye-opening experience and got me even more interested in manufacturing. Obviously I had kind of seen into it through Brenline, but I had never personally worked in a manufacturing company or personally had my hands up, been involved in it. So those four months were really cool and in, in, in seeing how they operated, what the process was like, how they organized everything. 
the complexity of the manufacturing when it came to sourcing, making sure things were in on time, constantly troubleshooting little issues. And then I did quite a bit of helping with documenting of technical instructions as well as standard operating procedures. So really seeing a, a shop that was probably a pretty old school shop, making that slow transition to, to being a more modern shop. And after that co-op, I, I, I realized that uh, manufacturing is really where I wanted to go. I was already doing a manufacturing minor at school, so I was already pretty interested in it, but that, that solidified it for me. I'd also always been interested in starting a company. Entrepreneurship really seems to run in my family pretty strongly, at least just in, in my immediate family. Um, so I was always interested in that and, and really wasn't that interested in ever working for a big corporation or working for another company. So that summer, I was thinking about buying my first kind of hobby CNC mill. I was looking at Tormox and other similar mills just to kind of get my hands dirty. Uh, mm -hmm. Unlike it used to be at many colleges where machine shops were kind of just open to the students and you could easily get in there to, to work on personal projects or other stuff. Nowadays, with insurance and liability and safety and everything, uh, our access to the shop there was just really restricted and really didn't have those opportunities. So I kind of had to create those opportunities for myself to get my hands on, on machines and actually spend some real time learning about CNC machining and, and manufacturing. Did you look at any of the maker spaces in the Boston area? I did. Yeah. I went to uh, artist asylum and looked at their space. And what led you to want to buy your own machine as opposed to sort of jump into that shared community? Yeah, I think the big thing for me was I, I, I really had no plan. I was just wanting to tinker and experiment and just make stuff and not have, you know, the, the worry of damaging someone else's equipment or, you know. So when you say experiment, so you were just like you modded cars, you were going to mod your machine tools. Is that what I'm hearing? Or not even modify them, but kind of experiment with learning how to use them, get some hands-on time, probably break a couple of tools, and make mm -hmm. my kind of independent cuts, learn some CAM programming on myself by myself, and, and really figuring out how it works. I, I just wanted to have it as kind of being a side hobby, but something that, you know, I could leave a piece of material in the machine for... Uh, um, uh, is, is this a, an every weekend type of thing? Are you in the shop every Saturday, every Sunday, once a week? Or was yeah, the shop in your was the shop in your apartment or dorm room? <laughs> well, so so I, I did this initial hunting for a hobby CNC machine and was looking at Tormox and stuff. And while I was doing that, I I came across an Instagram post from a guy named Jay Pearson. He owns Pearson Workholding, which makes CNC fixture plates and or quick release uh, work holding um, fixtures. And he posted on a story about selling a Haas mini mill. And the price was actually pretty similar to what a new Tormach would end up costing. So I thought about it quite a bit, you know, bounce the idea off, off <laughs> from to my dad as well. And uh, kind of was like, okay, this might be an opportunity to maybe do something more than just have it as a hobby and get a machine that could eventually, you know, turn this from being just a side project into an actual business, which was something I was hoping to do anyway. So, so that's what ended up happening. I ended up buying that mill from Jay. I went out to California and looked at it while also visiting some friends and ended up buying it there and, and bought it before having a place to put it. 
as, as <laughs> many other shop owners have, have stories of doing. So immediately after that, I had to start kind of the hunt for uh, a place to keep it. I thought about keeping it up in a garage at my parents' New Hampshire, but I really wanted it to be more local and, and more accessible. So I, I started looking for a shop that was in close relation to, to where I was going to school. So I could easily make my way over there every evening and regularly on the weekends. So luckily Jay didn't need it out of a shop too quickly. So that gave me a bit of time to, to do some hunting and ended up finding a shop within like 15, 20 minutes of where I went to school in, in Cambridge and Massachusetts. So that was the first experience. But of, when you say a shop now, did you rent some space from an existing shop or you had your own space? Yeah, it was a large building with multiple kind of subletted bays. So I rented one of those bays. It was about 2,500 square feet. So, um, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, it was luckily the right price, even though it was a bit larger than what I initially thought I needed. It actually ended up being just about the right size. Had a bit of an office area that I could kind of work out of and do all the programming, a place to put the machine. It had three, three phase power, which... <laughs> one of those right. necessary boxes to check unless you want to go through the hurdle of face converters and everything. It's Saturday morning. We open the garage door up. What do we see? Oh, so it was a, a long kind of 20 foot by 100 foot bay. And at the end of it was the office. And immediately after the garage door ended up putting in a, a car lift. So we could I <laughs> getting it under cars and, and making some parts for my own car, which eventually ended up turning into our first couple of products. So kind of had that as a basic kind of R&D space. And then behind that had the, the first mill. Has there ever been one project that you're just in love with or, or can, like you think about as like a go-to project that you fix or car? Nothing in particular from those early days. Did a lot of trial and error learning about fixturing and, and work holding. That's probably the biggest area of, you know, process reliability issues or really where that deep-seated knowledge of real experience machinist comes in is is how best to hold the part it's by far probably you know the big the hardest part of machining any component is is how are you going to fixture especially when the geometry starts to become complicated on the second and third off so spent a lot of time making fixtures and stuff that just never ended up working and a trial and error but are you a straight CAD guy and caliper measure, or do you get with the cardboard and do the templates, or how you like? Oh, yeah, those guys have to be exactly precise, or yeah, straight to CAD. Ended up getting a three D printer pretty quickly, and and being able to do some pretty quick rapid prototyping that way. Which three D printing was another thing that I hadn't really spent much time on, or even considered much. I I had kind of preconceived notions on it of being really just a hobbyist thing and something that wouldn't have much value, but after having our first one and realizing that, oh, I can design something and then print it in the next eight hours and immediately fit it up and being able to have a part in your hand that quickly. And the biggest thing is it's, it's so hard to, to gauge size of parts or feel yeah. of parts. Which technology and printer did you bring in house? Like a very cheap Chinese Creality 3D printer. I think it was maybe four or $500 off of- Was it a fused deposition modeling then? Yeah, yeah. 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 So just a real basic printer, but it, it, it was so handy when it came to, to rapid prototyping and getting stuff out of CAD and, and quickly making iterative changes. A lot of people in the car industry will, will like recreate old cars or refurbish or try and get the original equipment. Then there's the, 
track guy that wants like all speed and then there's like the lowering guy that wants all looks aesthetic like what type of field do you fit into that yeah so we end up catering nowadays mostly to either restoration so very high-end restoration work classic porsche and and ferraris mostly and then we also do a lot of work for performance cars as well so track vehicles race cars that type of thing and Those are kind of the two areas that we've seen the biggest market for and are usually the ones that are willing to to spend the money that needs to be spent on custom parts. There are a lot of people out there who really just don't understand the cost that goes into something or they they want something custom made and they, they base their budget off of the other parts that are similar that are already out there, but not understanding the, the cost difference between a one-off that has to be custom designed and a production part that some companies making hundreds of at a time. And are, you, are you more of a problem solver or a solution provider where they're giving you the design and model and manufacture, or are they say explaining like, I need, I have a push going into the corner and things like that. Or? Yeah. So that's a big place that we've noticed uh, a lot of availability for us to add value to customers. A lot of our customers are, performance shops that have ideas for parts and maybe have a napkin sketch, but have no ability to create cab models or create prototypes or, or even design parts. So we do a lot of top to bottom, fully vertically integrated work for customers where they'll come to us with just the idea. We will do the initial prototyping and test fitting for them. We'll get their sign off and approval to, to say that part meets all the, the needs that they had. And then will typically either go to a prototype machine part or go into production of the part for them as well, which has been really good for us as a way to kind of secure some production work and also being the kind of provider of the prototyping and and design as well. We pretty early on saw a lot of demand for laser scanning work, especially in the automotive field where you're designing components that have to be mounted to existing bolt hole locations or existing features on a car. So we, we acquired a, a laser scanner probably in the first six months of us being in operation. And that helps so much with reverse engineering work. One notable project that really comes to mind that shows this is, a, is an alternator bracket we made for a 996 Porsche GT3, which had a Chevy LS engine swapped into it. Oh, and, LS1? Oh my God. Yeah, or maybe an LS... Three, I think it must have sounded awesome. It, it was it surprised everyone when it started up because it was definitely not a, a flat six. And That's my style. Yeah, it was very cool. And on the back streets of one of the local tracks here, Palmer, it it makes some amazing burbles and backfires as it, as it downshifts. It, it's a really cool project. So we worked with a local shop on that to produce a uh, one-off alternator bracket that repositioned the alternator. So we came in, laser scanned the engine, picked up on the bolt hole locations it was going to mount to, designed the parts, 3D printed them, went up, test fitted it, made some changes. I think we maybe mailed them the next iteration. They test fit it again. We had laser scanned both the alternator and the alternator pulley as well. So we had all those in CAD um, to use as reference and ended up going from the initial kind of... um, meeting with them when we did the initial laser scanning to the final machine part in like under five business days, which would not have been possible without the ability to do laser scanning and rapid prototyping. And laser scanning sounds like fun and so easy, but it's totally not. And the cleanup and the CAD model and the expertise, you have to get a full surface out of it. Yeah. That's Um, that's like 
software CAD work, not really hands-on work. Exactly. Yeah. It, it takes a lot of work and, and there's a lot of post-processing that goes into it. It's funny. We, we hear from other people who are thinking about buying laser scanners and, and really don't understand the amount of work that goes into it and the amount of post-processing it takes to really turn that raw scan data into the, the useful CAD file or useful reference geometry. There's a, la a layer of detail to fudge factor that you kind of just have to have and go with and just know like, you know, 10,000 will be good here or 5,000 here. And some people are just so exact, they, they get stuck right at that point. Like, oh, we can't do it. Exactly, you know, exactly. 90 degrees. So, so I want to ask you, David, you're still in college while this is going on? Yeah, yeah. Still at this point, I was still in college. This was so between my, my I just wanted to make sure we, we set that reference point. You still got your day job. The laser scanner, which laser scanner did you? We have a Ferro design scanner. And did you go out and survey the market or how did you land on the Ferro? And what uh, capabilities honestly, were essential for you that it gives you? Yeah, so we, so we did some market research and looked at some of the other alternatives there. And, and a big part of us going for that was actually the sales rep was really good to work with. He came by with someone from the software supplier as well and did a demo for us. And we got to get our hands on some actual scan data that, that we needed for a project and really got to understand, you know, the benefits of it and, and how the actual workflow would be for us internally. The big perk for us with going for the Faro was its probing ability. So it has a probe tip that you can actually use kind of similar to a CMM. And when it, you say probe tip, so many of the listeners I suspect have never scanned parts before. You're talking about physical contact at points, correct? Exactly. exactly. Like a pro tip similar to what, what a CMM would have that actually you contact the part, push the button and that collects a point of data. So it has pre-built-in features into the, into the software for creating a plane. So you can probe three points and create a plane geometry if you need that as reference, which is really great instead of having to just reference straight off of the scan data, it actually gives you like a CAD feature to use. So you can do that as well for cylinders as well. If you're trying to pick up like a bolt hole location or something like that. It's hard to describe to someone that hasn't struggled with it, how clean a plane is or a cylinder is with it, but touching three points versus this. So, so what, yeah, which, point cloud. which software exactly. are you using? Is it supplied by Faro? Is it third party? It's third party. So we use 3d systems, geomagic wrap which does all the post-processing and the scanning is done through that software as well. And so that people understand what does a system of the hardware and software, what's the price for something like this? I believe for hardware and software combined, the software is pretty expensive, like, like most of what, what we end up having to acquire in, in this industry. But I believe total it was about $60,000. So not a small investment and considerably more than even what the first mill cost. Did you, how did you substitute for laser scanning before you had that capability? So you said you were making parts for your own car. What was the alternative? What and how much time did you save? Honestly, the alternatives were, there's almost no comparison. Trying to pick up bolt hole locations that aren't clearly separated or easily on a pattern, if they're randomly straight, it's really hard to pick those up. So you end up kind of, you know, trying to 
measure with a caliper between two holes, but usually they're too far apart to even get a caliper between. And then do the math to find the center points. And it just takes so much more time and is so much more convoluted and less accurate than, than what the scanning provides. So we always <laughs> kind of struggled with that kind of stuff. You know, maybe if it was a machine surface with multiple bolt hole locations, you could take a piece of paper and put it over it and try and trace out the holes or use like a piece of chalk or something to get those to come through onto the paper and then, you know, take a picture of that piece of paper and pull it into CAD and then try <laughs> to scale it correctly or something like that, which works and can be done, but was not the right solution for long-term. And it goes back to the art versus science. That, that takes an artist to be able to do that and transpose that and actually get that part of the machine off the fit correctly. Exactly. And, and then as soon as you start, end up having bolt hole locations that are on multiple planes, then you just end up with a whole bunch of difficulty with, you know, you end up holding a straight edge up to one plane and trying to measure the distance uh, from one plane to the other. And it just becomes really tricky. So how long does it take for a, the, say this alternator to do the laser scanning and then the CAD work to to make it usable CAD geometry? Yeah, so so there's kind of two different workflows for using scan data. One is when you're trying to create a CAD model of the object that you're scanning because you want to replicate that CAD <laughs> object. And that's far more time intensive. You typically want to produce a step file. And there's actually better softwares for that can produce like a, a tree as well. So you can go back in and make modifications to extrude. Mm. It, the, the model more comes in like a typical CAD model would. But a lot of what we end up doing and, and similar to this is we need some CAD reference points, bolt hole locations, planes, that type of thing, which we can get in through the probing or even through best fit features of the scan data. But typically we only end up pu pulling in a, a step file because all we're worried about is whether these two objects are gonna hit but, <laughs> or collide. So really we just need the volumetric kind of space of that taken up. And then we pull just the independent features that we're actually going to use as mounting locations or, or key reference geometry. So to actually produce a stat file doesn't take too long. It depends on what kind of quality you want, whether it needs to be air filled or a completely enclosed um, like water type model, or whether it can just be a really raw scan. So typically for us to post-process something like in, in this example, it, it was probably like an hour of post-processing work or, or maybe slightly more than that but nothing too bad and and the the quality is just so much better than than what we would have gotten by hand and probably would have taken about the same amount of time and during that we were also able to probe things like the pulley that was on the engine so that created the plane for us to align all the other components to so our alignment was dead on the first time there was no the the pulley on the alternator wasn't slightly off from the pulley on the engine, which obviously would cause issues when the belt's running. So, you know, we were able to, our bolt hole locations and everything, when we produced the first prototype, we're, we're dead on without any major alteration, at least to the to locating geometry, which there's no way we could have done that by hand any other way. So you brought the laser scanning technology and the, and the CAD capability in-house almost out of necessity. Yeah, yeah. yeah really. Are there many other shops in the greater Boston area or in New England who have the ability to do what you're doing? Or how do folks, how did folks get this sort of thing done before you existed? 
Yeah, there, there are definitely some metrology companies in the Boston area or other companies that have like kind of just laser scanning services that they offer. But we, we never ended up really outsourcing it ever. We, we just went directly to taking it in-house. So I actually don't know much about the other services that are out there. But since we brought in the technology, we ended up offering those services to other companies. And the majority of our work has still been in the automotive field. We, we do a lot of laser scanning for an aftermarket wheel company called Apex Wheels. They're mm-hmm. actually based in Southern California, but we've been able to form a really strong relationship with them. And we understand exactly the, the scan data that they need now. So we'll typically do the sourcing of finding someone with a car who's willing to volunteer for an hour or so to bring it into our shop for us to do the scanning. And we scan the, the brake rotor and brake caliper and some of the suspension components and then hand that off to the wheel manufacturer so they can verify clearance on their aftermarket wheels. You keep mentioning we. And again, you had your day job. How did the, how did it happen where you now had other team members and how did you have the, I guess, the courage to hire them or was it on a part-time ad hoc basis? How did that, how did that make, how did you feel comfortable doing that? Yeah. So we are, I, at the start, after about six months of doing everything by myself, started talking to someone who I previously worked with at an old employer and had him come in and he was pretty interested in what we're doing. It was a new skill set for him and something he was really interested in getting into. So he started coming in the evenings to help kind of run parts on the side and get his feet wet in in the, the CNC manufacturing world. And we did that through kind of the end of the winter and, and into the fall and by the end or into the spring and by the end of the spring it was becoming pretty apparent that we were end up gonna gonna be growing pretty quickly there was also the typical thing of you know being at the liability of a landlord that building had actually been sold to a large developer and and <laughs> had to get out anyway so in in about may of that year I started doing doing some looking for a new shop and especially with the kind of real estate climate around here, it was apparent that this, this company wasn't going away and it'd be worth looking at purchasing a building. So if you've ever bought real estate in Boston area, you know that the market is, is a, a fast one and a, yes. a very small one. And there's really not very many places that come up on the market when they do. If it's somewhere good, they, they go really quickly. So I did a bunch of looking, talking to some realtors, looked at a bunch of places that just were obviously not right and ended up coming across the building that we're currently in through just, I think, LoopNet, which is the big kind of almost the equivalent of Zillow for commercial real estate. And this place was hidden. It was horribly listed. Whoever the, the agent was, the, the guy who previously owned it was using, was not doing him very good justice. But ended up stumbling upon it and looking at it. And we were initially thinking that, that the right place would be somewhere between five and 10,000 square feet, giving us a bit of an ability to grow, but without being too big and looked at this building and it was considerably larger than what we were looking for. It was 20,000 square feet. So, so the, the immediate question, well, immediately my thinking was, you know, okay, this just isn't going to work. This, this is way larger than we need. But my dad is quite entrepreneurial and quite a, quite a big thinker when it comes to thinking about companies and, and how to run them. And 
he he thought it was going to be the the perfect fit and but i had to figure out a way to use up the extra space so went through kind of the process of you know talking to some other business owners who i thought might be interested in space but none of them were were really ready to move um into a new space and so I thought about subletting the, the extra space, but after some trial and error with, with trying to figure out ways to do that, came to the conclusion of starting another business. So I have another business called Garage 42 that is a, a high-end car storage facility and caters mostly to, to either exotic cars or you know sports cars, Corvettes, that type of thing, and um, started that business as well. So. This was in the May of my senior year, and the way Wentworth works with co-op programs is we don't end up graduating till August. So I was, you know, partway through my senior year and looking to <laughs> going through the process of acquiring a pretty large commercial building, which was going to require a decent amount of work as well. So so ended up. Did you trying. did the school give you any credit for some of your entrepreneurial endeavors? So. Yeah, so that, that's actually something pretty funny. Um, during the, the summer between my junior year and senior year, I uh, was actually in school because of the co-op program. So we have a summer term. So that was like the equivalent of my summer of my junior spring. And then I was going to have another co-op at the, in the fall um, of my senior year. And I knew that I, I wasn't going to be able to manage a full-time co-op while also running this business. So I went to the school and kind of proposed this idea and wrote up a, a proposal for doing an entrepreneurship co-op, um, <laughs> which they had never done before. It was something brand new to them, but I guess I must have done a pretty good job pitching it to them. So and so they ended up going for it and, and accepting it as an actual full-time co-op. Um, so, so this is a another great lesson of making stuff happen by action and not just following the standard protocol or it's not, I don't want to say that necessarily there, there were rules on co-op, but there were got definitely guidelines. Yeah. And, and, it's and there, not, there certainly were rules. We, we were required uh, to do two co-ops and they were required to be paid co-ops okay. as well. And they had to be approved by the school. So it was pretty stringent with, with how it typically ran. But, but this is, if you're thinking about being an entrepreneur, you have to be at least willing to bend the rules. And sometimes you ask for permission first, other times you ask for permission afterwards, which Steve was always great for doing something and then asking for forgiveness, I guess is the term. <laughs> but within a school environment to get your credit, you had to ask for permission first. But you were intentional and you, you put together something which they felt comfortable with. Yeah, exactly. I put together a written proposal, kind of tried to tried to make it so it satisfied all the needs that they had for the typical co-op. So I ended up meeting with a business mentor, one of the business professors once a week to kind of go over the business side. And then I also had a mentor that was one of our engineering professors who was also pretty involved in manufacturing. So I would go to them and they would end up kind of being my critics, also being my mentors through the process as well, and people who I could really lean on to get some advice from. And that are, there was, any, are there a couple of lessons that stick out that you've learned through that? I mean, that, those are some great people to be kind of coaching you in the moment, at, you know, trying to yeah. hear my yeah. problems. What are, you, what are your solutions? Yeah, on the business side, it was, you know, everything that I've done when it comes to entrepreneurship is stuff that I've never experienced before. You know, there's 
some things that I've pulled from that one four month co-op, but really that is my entire work experience outside of doing myself, which means I don't have, you know, I didn't have an understanding of even, you know, the accounting or how companies went about figuring out what their retail cost would be on their products. So that was a big thing, kind of understanding the psychology behind how to set a, a price for, for. So this is super important, David. And I don't know if you formally thought about this, but when you're, you come across, I'll call it an obstacle or something that you have not done before, but has to be done. How do you approach it? Well, uh, the, one of the biggest things for me is I, I really understand how I learn. I'm dyslexic and have a bit of ADD and a bit of ADHD and yeah, a, a bit of it all, which means I actually have a pretty good understanding of how I learn and, and how I need to have information presented to me for me to best absorb it and best understand it. So I am an autodidact on to the truest terms. So I'm a real self-learner and kind of self-educator and learn really well from watching videos or from YouTube and that kind of thing. YouTube has become such a strong resource and it's no longer just for, you know, cat videos and watching mm. people crash on dirt bikes or anything like that. It's a real resource where you can actually learn some really, really great things about either cat or cam or accounting basics or, or how to do some of the basic, you know, pricing of components or marketing or, or anything really. So mm. whenever I came across a hurdle and I knew that there was something new I had to learn, that was, that was typically the first resource I would go to. I've watched a lot of John Saunders, NYC, CNC's videos, and he has a lot of basics on those accounting things. And we got into doing a lot of kind of job shop work, how to do the basics of quoting and that type of thing. And well, let's let's give him a plug. So who is this for the audience? Uh, John Saunders, whose YouTube channel is NYC, CNC, and he runs a shop called Saunders Machine Works. And he started off as a you know real kind of bootstrap grassroots entrepreneur and and has now built a, a pretty successful fixturing company that went through you know having some sometimes of being a, a bit of a strong job shop but he's put out some amazing content on entrepreneurship business entrepreneurship related to manufacturing and manufacturing yourself fusion cad and cam machining practices, feeds and speeds, pretty much everything, you know, you could learn from his YouTube channel, the basics of starting a, a machine shop. So it was one of the most in, invaluable resources for me when I was starting the, the company out. And then a lot of times, you know, you got to kind of just be a bit hungry to find the information you need and lean on the resources you have, whether it was going to my dad and asking him for advice. And mm -hmm. um, obviously he had a, a bit of a career before he started his entrepreneurship. So he had a lot of that foundation and knowledge to, to pull from and um, leaning on other shop owners or asking questions to the guys at Renline as to how they maybe went about stuff or, or different resources like that. So usually if a problem comes up that you can find the, the information somewhere, you just got to be a bit scrappy about how you go about it. <laughs> so we're all about sharing information. And one of the things that seems somewhat unique to your business is how you market and you're a digital native if I can use that term so Instagram Facebook I don't know what other social media platforms but you use social media to let people know about the capabilities of your shop and that you can help them can you describe what you're doing how you get started how you look at that 
Yeah, so I honestly per- personally find for the manufacturing stuff, the biggest thing that, that social media allows is the ability to kind of make people aware of what you offer and then also to start relationships with people. Some of the strongest relationships that we have with customers or people who I have made friends with in the industry or people who you know, I've met through Instagram who I liked, you know, liked what they were posting. I ended up following them, maybe mm-hmm. ended up messaging them and having pretty long conversations. And now I have some pretty close friends on even the West Coast who I've met, you know, twice for, you know, dinner, but I talk to pretty regularly, probably weekly or biweekly about, you know, either issues we're having or just to, you know, talk shop and, and the relationships that you're able to produce and through social media or are some of the most genuine and, and natural relationships with people who are, you know, outside of just your local bubble. It's a real like networking resource. And it's pretty amazing that through those kinds of resources, whether it be Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn, you can access people who otherwise would be untouchable, you know, before those existed. The fact that now you can go on LinkedIn, you can look up a company, you can go to people and see who works there. And immediately be like, oh, this person has the position that's probably the one that I need to talk to if I want to do work with them or if they want to do work with me. And it's pretty amazing the ability to connect with people and message people and talk to people. Um, I don't know how you would go about, you know, sourcing a, a procurement person or a supply chain person that at a company, you know, 10 years ago when, you know, you didn't have a way to easily get their email address or their phone number or anything. It's called social engineering. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You'd have to call the switchboard and somehow get someone to give you the name so that you could call them directly. And it, was, <laughs> exactly. it wasn't necessarily easy. Yeah, and, and that, that honestly kind of leads me into some questions I have for you as, as being someone to maybe lean on a bit who has directly kind of gone through the, the path that we're now following. And I have a lot of ways of approaching kind of business development and meeting new customers that are maybe a bit different, but I would love to hear more about how you went about it with Proto Labs and, and rapid prototyping and how you guys met your first customers and kind of built those relationships and met new customers and, and continue to build out your kind of customer portfolio. Well, one of the things that I was able to do early in my career was have a mentor like you've, you've described who I wanted to go out and become a manufacturer's rep. And he said, Jay, you're going to starve. Mm-hmm. You don't know enough people. So back before LinkedIn and even before the web dating myself here, it was really important to have a lot of contacts to know a lot of people at a lot of different companies. And I, joined a company called Brookfield Rapid Solutions, which was one of the first sterile lithography service bureaus in New England. And I joined them in the mid nineties. And that being such a rare manufacturing skill or capability at the time, people wanted to talk to you and the doors would open. So I met a lot of people. I got that customer base and that allowed me to, at the right time, then go off and become a manufacturer's rep. And the, that customer base, when I decided to start Rapid, was who I hit initially. And it was all New England-based. Now, that's not really helping you. It's, it, but what 
we did at Rapid was we, and, and this is just basic marketing when you don't have a lot of money, is you don't rely on one strategy. And we had a bunch of them. We would use Google AdWords and they, that was back in its infancy. It was a lot easier to use then. We would sponsor user groups. I'd been doing that since the late 80s. CAD user groups. We did the Pro-E and some of the other ones and started with the SolidWorks. We would do regular email blasts. We'd do newsletters. And if I was doing it today, one of the things is you try to do what everybody else is not doing. So actually receiving some physical mail today is rare. So I would probably, if I had a real tight mailing list, do a mailing and people will read that now. They, they don't get so much mail that they're just mm-hmm. tossing half of it. And that actually is what I did in the late 80s to generate business as we had a customer base. And I found out that if I contacted them by sending them a letter, it generated a lot of RFQs because even though it seems odd, you guys have some unique services and you would think people would remember you. They got a lot of other things going on and they don't always remember and, or at least think of you as if you're not the direct solution. So just a, uh, it may move from the physical letters to email as a great way of staying in touch with folks. I think now a physical piece of information, whether it's a letter or a newsletter, whatever, is probably appropriate. I, I do think though, sales now is, it's credibility if, and what you're doing on Instagram and Facebook, just creating YouTube videos. If you become a go-to solution provider, and perhaps that's a little more difficult if you're trying to reach the buyer at a medical device company who's not going to be looking about laser scanning but the when they do hear about you or they do google you there's a lot of information and that helps you rise above the crowd obviously we're in the covid times the before that i would have said (laughs) call on people again because nobody calls uh on folks anymore, but, but that's definitely not uh, happening right now. So you have to have a way to reach them digitally. But I, I think content creation is huge and LinkedIn is definitely a great place to put that out. Um, Steve, you have, you have any thoughts on that? You were always really good once somebody, and I guess this is super important too, is once somebody comes in the door, they're not a customer yet. You're, you have a quoting opportunity. And Steve, maybe you could just share some of the thoughts how you would uh, work with those folks when they came in. You just got to respond quickly. Like People like hearing responses. They don't want to send an email to a dead email box, whether your response is even accurate or not, to say, oh, I'll look into it or I'll get back to you soon. Any type of response makes you feel much more appreciative. And anytime you have these back and forth with emails, that kind of bond gets stronger and stronger. We're doing really good over uh, here at Approved Sheet Metal, whereas, you know, it's a snowball effect too. Like we're starting from zero almost, but every successful project, we get another opportunity after that. And the opportunities seem to be getting bigger and bigger. 
And we're starting to see, you know, customers come back five, six times now, and now they want production parts and the orders are bigger or it's, or it's referred back by another guy. But if you just do what you say you're going to do, under promise, over deliver, like Jay taught me, deliver a quality part on time and be happy and be enjoyable and make sure that, you know, the, the good atmosphere that you're creating gets passed over the phone, but no one wants to talk to a guy that's like all serious and, you know, not fun to be around or talk to on the phone. You just got to keep it fun and happy. And one of the biggest things I think I do at my business, I'm a big cheerleader over here and keep all the mood up. It sounds funny, but I mean, that all that mood and that team environment that you create does get passed over the phone. So two companies side by side, you know, doing the same exact process, it's all how you deliver the message. Yeah, that's very true. Something that, that I've definitely recognized um, is communication is so key. Just having a customer even know that you've received the email and that you're working on it, I think goes a really long way for them instead of just, you know, sending an email, not hearing anything for, you know, 12 or 14 hours or something. And then eventually you get back to them with the final quote, but it's great to just immediately be like, yep, I'm on this. We've heard some feedback from our customer that that's been pretty, pretty key to, to the relationship aspect. And I think it's very important to be aware of what you don't do. Like, you know, I've been in the industry for a while. I've seen a lot of vendors that we worked with. I mean, some of the way they respond back to you is like, I don't even want to go back to work and then working with them again. They could be absolutely right. It's just how they deliver the message. And, you know. and I think also that's a great point, Steve. And, but taking it a different way is if somebody comes to you that with a request that doesn't fit, what you do, David, they obviously saw something that they saw that was of interest to them in your shop. So this is a sales opportunity. You can have a conversation with them, let them know why that's not a fit, but let them know where you might fit with them. And it's so hard to get someone on the phone. And this is a great opportunity where they, I think, will willingly take the call and you can position yourselves the way you want to the type of business you want to get yeah exactly and you know similar to that we've had cases where where people have came to us for for certain work that has been outside of a wheelhouse but we might have a connection that we can connect them to that might be able to to get the job done or someone reputable that we can support and i think that goes a long way for customers and recognizing that you're really there to support them and to work with them and to help them and you're not just there to, you know, uh, only work with them if they're going to give you money, you know, have, have a really strong relationship. That's a bit of a give and a take. And it's important as you grow that everyone on your team understands that they are integral to making the customer feel loved. Remember, Steve, we would say smother the customer with love. <laughs> and I would get upset with people who just would want to email. I, if you've emailed more than two times back and forth, pick up the phone and talk to somebody. The email's not going to solve it. And so many people aren't comfortable on the phone, and I'll say initially, but it's a skill that you have to learn, and it just happens through repetition. And Steve, I don't know if you remember when we tried to get you on the phone early on, and where you are now, but it was you weren't comfortable. No, we just got to keep doing it. The other, the other thing that we do in our shop, which is great, is we see like that was a 
fair of a hardware to get in. The guy wrestled with it, but we'll communicate that to your customer. We still made the parts, but hey, just want to know that you know hardware in this location. We put a clearance hole around it. You do that once or twice, and you're helping them out. Yeah, or or when you're coding a part and you you give them some insight. Hey, like this feature in particular is why this part is this expensive if you made these changes or were able to, you know, we could help reduce the cost of this part and save you some money and giving them some free design for manufacturing advice, I think goes a long way and is a great way to add value to customers. Something kind of along the lines of, you know, calling customers. We, I end up traveling to, to some of our customers pretty often. And especially with them not being engineering companies or companies that are doing CAD on their own, they don't necessarily understand which parts would make for great machine components or great aftermarket components. So if we go to them and we kind of chat to them about the projects that they having on, have going on, or if we've been making parts for a certain vehicle, a certain motorcycle or something, and taking a look at the bike with them and being like, hey, like how about this plastic part? I think there might be some opportunity to make a really cool part here that will look great for your company, you know, maybe have some great performance benefits. And, and it's one that could be made pretty cost effectively and helping generate those ideas for them to then, you know, give the ideas to them for them to then come back to you to actually end up doing the work is somewhere that we've seen a lot of value and a lot of, you know, growth and somewhere we, we can offer some value to our customers and help them kind of expand the portfolio of products that they offer or expand their understanding of the, the resource that we can be on the manufacturing side. I love it. I, I think that's going to take you a, a long ways. Anything else that you'd like to ask us? I think that's mostly it. You know, it, it so, so comes down to having the personal relationship. You know, you initially got to get that started by just getting in front of them and making them aware of what you're able to, to offer and kind of what separates you from the other competition. And it's pretty understand, easy to understand the issues that the competition has and how to be better than them, right? The, the biggest things that I'm sure everyone hears from customers is our existing manufacturer either has really long lead times, doesn't meet lead times, uh-huh. doesn't communicate well, but usually price isn't really the issue for the customer. The big thing are those other metrics, either quality, on-time delivery, or communication. So, and honestly, those are kind of hard things to be really good at, but those are really where the the places to shine are. So that's really the big thing to focus on and the big thing that that we are thinking that we need to help portray to our prospective customers to help get them to either start that initial conversation so, so we can, you know, start having that relationship with them. So, you know, I think your competitive advantage is your ability to reverse engineer your ability to understand the scanning and, and have that touch off of planes too. Mm-hmm. You talked about a five-day uh, reverse, a five-day turn on a part. Like that's amazing if someone's stuck or their car's down. What other competitive advantages are do you have versus your competition? Yeah, so I think that plays on the biggest thing is the fact that we can really offer kind of a one-stop shop to our customers. The only aspect that has recently came across my my ideas of ways to add value is the assembly side of things, but we can at least take a, an idea to a final production product for our customers with easy communication along the way and, uh, and making it as seamless for them. And, uh, you know, it's great when those projects end up turning into production parts and then seeing the customer come back and reorder those parts in the future. 
and be like, okay, great. Like this initial investment for them is obviously paying off and they're seeing some real value in, in, you know, taking on their own, you know, first in-house products and that, that type of thing. Yeah. Now, do you guys do like sheet metalworking too? Like if someone wanted a custom gas tank or a fender or are you just machine parts? We are, we are mostly machine parts. We do some outsourcing of laser cut sheet metal parts, but the majority of our work is currently just in, in machine goods. Where, if, if we're talking to you in five years from now, where are we going to see Rent Scott? What are you going to hopefully look like? Yeah, so, so like, like, like the history of the company, it's, it's really guided by things that I've been passionate in. And so we have some pretty exciting discussions going on now with some of the, the top tier kind of very exclusive small volume manufacturers of cars, full, full, full complete car manufacturers. So one of them is based in New York, Connecticut area. They're called Glickenhaus. Um, and we've been talking to them quite a bit about manufacturing goods for them. So that's really an area that, that we would love to, to get into more and and be kind of known as the high quality, very niche market OEM supplier. And then just just scaling overall, adding more machines, adding a larger customer base. We've seen, at least in the automotive world, there's quite a bit of demand for composite products. And mm. we regularly get asked by customers if we do it or if we know someone who does um, offer composites. So that could definitely be another area that we could end up adding. Um, and, and machining of composites is quite tricky too, and there aren't many shops who are good at it. So if you can develop that skill set. That, that's certainly true as well. So there's a whole bunch of other niches yeah. that we love to work our way into. Um, additive metal manufacturing is obviously something that's really coming up and something that we would be interested in kind of being ahead of and, and being kind of first to market to while it's still in its infancy. Awesome. Well, I think this is a great place to wrap it up. David, your story is so inspiring. Thanks for sharing how you get going and your journey so far. You're just starting out, but you've already accomplished so much. And I think the discussion on scanning was really useful for our audience in how some of the nuances and how you go about it, how you have to think about it. And perhaps it made it more realistic for someone who's thinking about adding that capability to their shop. And I like how you are taking charge. You, we talked about your passion, but you, in many ways, don't know exactly what that passion is until you start doing something. And the act of doing is something, even at your young age, that you've captured. And I hope that someone listening will, here's my challenge to the listener. What is it that you've been procrastinating on that you could act on and just a small step to take you there? Because that's what, that's what helps you find your passion, what helps move you forward. So anything else, David, that you want to put out there that we didn't get to? I think that covers most of the, most of the early days and, and how we started up. And it was great to have the opportunity to, to be on it and share our story. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. And how can people reach you? Yeah, so we have a, a website specifically for our kind of manufacturing and design services, renscottmfg.com. And, and Ren, can you spell Renscott for folks? Yeah, Renscott is R-E-N-S-C-O-T. So R-E-N-N-S-C-O-T-M-F-G.com is our manufacturing website. 
which outlines our manufacturing offerings and design and scanning offerings. And then also has our paperless parts plugin where people can drop CAD files for RFQs. Great. Well, thanks again for being on. And Steve, appreciate you jumping in co-host duties today. Anything else you want to throw in there? That was awesome. Really cool stuff. Interesting. What's the first product we're going to see from approved sheet metal? <laughs> More quality parts on time. <laughs> Maybe David's got some ideas for you. So, Yeah, we, we might have some work we can send your way. <laughs> All right. Well, again, what action can you take as the listener to, to move the ball forward? And are there any product ideas that you've always wanted to sell through your shop that your shop can at least produce a part of it's something that i always wanted to do i never could figure out the right products but i think there's so much opportunity there and the web just makes it so much easier today so if you have a success story on a product please let us know shoot us an email and otherwise have a fantastic day and until next time keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting <laughs>